I could have chosen any number of individuals to act as a guide through the Tudor London, but we know that Sir Thomas was an intelligent man with an eye for curiosity and an understanding of the broad sweep of history too. And that's a sound basis, I think, for a companionable walk. I'm not a historian, so that's, I should own up to that. I'm an environmental scientist, so some of the history I've had to, uh, I've had to get to grips with myself. Strictly speaking, the medieval period ended and the Tudor period began on the 22nd of August, 1485, when Henry Tudor defeated Richard III at Bosworth. And I should add, I come from Leicester, so that's uh, of some interest to me too. This prompted some immediate changes in the way things were done. For example, the switch to the use of English instead of Latin in courts. But the impact of the transition was arguably very limited until the dissolution or the closing of the monasteries by Henry VIII in the 1540s. That created not only enormous social upheaval, but massive changes in the shape and functioning of the City of London, which impacted dramatically on its natural history, its air, soil, water and ecology. My lecture tonight is only going to scratch the metaphorical surface of the ground, but I have provided a bibli bibliography which will be available on the internet for those of you who'd like to know more. London is what we might call a palimpsest, a palimpsest, a montage of old and new. The new being written over the old in so many ways, as we see here in the city, and here in the old valley of the Fleet River, viewed from Hoban Viaduct. The Fleet, or the Holborn River, was navigable to this point in the late medieval period, which is rather extraordinary when you look at it now. The massive spread of the modern city, nine million inhabitants, can be seen here in this extraordinary 2018 panorama. It, I, I just leave this running for a minute. It's a really extraordinary panorama. You can find it on the, uh, on the web. It's, it's 24 hours in London, shot during 2018. You can see the the time uh, tra tracking through there and, uh, and, the, and the website if you're interested. That's London in the 21st century. But we need to go back to an earlier panorama. We need to go back to the panorama, or this one, which is clo uh, pretty close to the time of Sir Thomas Gresham, uh, 1616, the panorama of London by Kleis Zamsun Vischer, testifies to change in the city, if not progress. That's, the, uh, that's the, the, uh, the 1660 view. But of course, London, the site of London was not a wilderness before the 16th century. And we need to understand quite a lot more about that to grasp the environmental inheritance. The Tudor city straddled three low gravelly hills, Ludgate Hill, Cornhill and Tower Hill, and a great English river, the Thames, which you see in the image there. Two millennia earlier, the local Celtic population had hunted, farmed and lived here during, using Iron Age technology. The hills provided a very convenient foundation for settlement close to the Thames estuary with fresh water available from the Walbrook stream which ran between them. Much of the area was forested, so semi-permanent settlement required clearings and the suffix in place names, dun, D-U-N, denotes circular defensive earthworks, for example, at Croydon, Hillingdon, 
and perhaps London itself. Then, after some centuries, and we're really speeding up time here, there was another invasion. From Roman times onwards, say about AD 43, Londinium grew into a much more substantial settlement of perhaps 60,000 people living where the gravels allowed offloading of the cargo from trading vessels. By then, of course, native trees such as oak, oak, birch, beech and ash had been cut and burnt over a wide area and farms spread out around this new city. There were stone and brick buildings housing the administration, shops and offices, and a wooden bridge had replaced the shallow Thames Ford between Lambeth and Westminster. However, despite the construction of a huge stone wall to repel further invaders, eventually it all became too trying for the Romans. After about AD 410, these European tax collectors and legions consequently either departed for sunnier climates, where I'm horribly in my mind at the moment is Brexit, but we won't go into there, or they went native by setting up shop with the locals. And plants like rosebay, willow herb, ragwort, fleabane and grass sprouted in the streets again, recolonising the rubble. The Anglo-Saxon chronicles of around AD 456 say that the Romano-British descendants were then merely squatting amongst the ruins of Londinium. Whereas further up the Thames at Luden Vic, west of the River Fleet near Blackfriars, a few hundred very energetic Anglo-Saxon incomers were trading from a major port at Charing Cross. Their insubstantial timber or wattle and door buildings were quite extensive from north of the Strand to Oxford Street and from Covent Garden across to Trafalgar Square, built on the formerly arable land of the Roman farmers. And by the AD 600s, the Venerable Bede referred to a bustling emporium of 8,000 people. Remember, though, that in Roman times there had been 60,000 people living there. 8,000 people, along with metal, pottery, textile workshops, and a lot of money. These Saxon buildings were also likely to have been surrounded by fields and secondary forest. And further west, at Westminster, the Tyburn, the River Tyburn, flowed down from a heathland at Hampstead into the marshy Thames through two branches with a raised wooden causeway linking the island between them to the mainland. This was a much wilder area, perhaps it still is today, Westminster, with deer, wild bulls and boar, bears, wolves and beavers, the target for hunters. And you would have been able to hear marsh birds and bitterns calling amongst the willow and the reeds. Now, we don't have time to go through all the history in huge detail, but in the 8th century, we should report that the Saxon luck ran out and there were a series of very savage summer attacks by the Vikings, who from about 865 decided not to go home to Scandinavia at all. The Saxon king, Alfred, tried to move his commercial hub back inside the Roman walls. He'd been off somewhere on the western side. Despite those walls being in ruins, they were more defendable. And so Ludenburg, as it was then, became a border town, occupying about a quarter of the old Roman city, 
in a grid of streets between the Walbrook and St Paul's and from the river, river north to Cheapside. Families occupied small wooden thatched huts surrounded by plots in which they gardened and kept animals, particularly pigs and sheep and goats. Much of the land within the walls remained as abandoned fields, but the dwellings gradually spread back eastwards across the fields to what would become the site of the Tower of London and Billingsgate. In about AD 1000, there was a millennium project, I suppose you could call it, and it saw the construction of a new timber bridge and the Saxon port moved further downstream, initially to what became Queen Hythe. So this progressively easterly move towards the deeper estuarine waters has continued till the present day. Now, unfortunately, London's history continued to be marred by violence. Despite various treaties, Viking attacks, fires, squabbles, sieges and pitched battles which damaged the infrastructure, Olaf Haraldsson taught the, taught the Londoners a particularly sharp lesson in AD 12, uh, 1014 by pulling down their new bridge. The point here is that repeated rounds of building and demolition raised the land surface by a metre or more in places, with the vegetation becoming progressively more degraded and the loss of most of the large trees. Not everything was a disaster. The Saxon inhabitants were somehow persuaded to redouble their efforts under King Edward. He turned the small timber monastery on Thorny Island in the Westminster Marshes into the stone monument that is now Westminster Abbey. But he did concurrently destroy the pristine marsh environment. And one suspects today that it wouldn't have had planning permission on habitat conservation grounds. <laughs> However, now, of course, we have two elements of the city, the area inside the former Roman walls and an outpost at Westminster to the west, separated by land that was not built up but retained some of its rural character. That was to be occupied in due course by smart new villas. Now, there isn't time to discuss all these coming and goings. There were hurricanes, floods, fires, and plagues and reconstructions over the following 500 years. Um, the Normans built the Tower of London and the Guildhall, uh, and stone, brick, and tiled houses also started to emerge amongst the highly combustible wattle and daub cottages. London Bridge was rebuilt in stone, uh, at considerable loss of life, I should say, the but the locals couldn't keep away from the carpentry and they soon covered it with wooden shops, houses and privies, about which we'll hear more later. The point here is London had started its journey to become a dominant city for Britain and an area where natural environment was rather difficult to discern within the city walls. By the end of the 15th century... The city was home to about 50 to 60,000 people again, in a, from a national total of two and a half million who mostly lived in small villages. London at that time, it was smallish in a world context. Beijing, Agra, Istanbul and others are thought to be much larger cities at this time, but it was four times the size of Norwich and much bigger than York, Bristol, Salisbury or Exeter. And it had begun to spread outside the Roman walls. 
Now, um, I just show you this uh, cross-section, the geological cross-section. It's the only geology you're going to see. But I just want to draw your attention to these layers of rock underneath the city. This is near the Blackwall Tunnel. But right at the top, you see the extent of the made ground. And it is very, very significant. Huge thickness of um, what today we would call the Anthropocene period. Um, ground made up of rubble of buildings and so on. Not perhaps a very fruitful uh, geological substrate for the growth of plants. Okay. So, by 1600, some 200,000 men, women and children were squeezed into an area in and immediately around the old Roman settlement with a lot of their livestock and pets. So what's apparent is that London was gradually taking back ground in Tudor times, my map, uh, or the map I'll show you in a second, summarises this pattern. Here we see a map of London apparently in about 1370 with some later editions. The problem here with this goth map is that we can't see very much on it. It's London, that area in the middle, um, is, uh, is, not very, uh, is not, clearly not a very accurate depiction this one's a little better, London in 1390, uh, drawn by Matthew Paris, monk uh, and cartographer. And in the mean, middle there, you can see St Paul's Cathedral um, and um, uh, one or two other churches and, and the river at the back there and some gates in the wall, uh, Bishop's Gate, uh, various other ones um, uh, labelled along the bottom there, Ludgate and so on. So we'll come back to those gates in a minute. Here we see um, an image in the right sort of period of the River Thames uh, and what appears to be a detailed representation of uh, part of London. It's the Tower of London, in fact. Um, but what we have here, of course, is, and, and this is a point we'll come back to repeatedly, is it's very difficult to see here anything about the natural environment. Very few clues. We see the tower in detail. We see the embanked River Thames. But the only vegetation we can see on this image is the rather uniform green of what we might assume to be grass on the slopes. Now, there is, of course, at this period, a leap forward in Tudor cartography. And um, switching forward several hundred years here, I just want to show you two or three maps which are outside our immediate period of interest. Uh, this is uh, John Norden's 1593 map of London uh, on which uh, somebody called John Speed, some of you may have heard of him, based his famous atlas. And you get the general sense, the pattern of, uh, of London, which uh, you can see here still the outline of the Roman wall uh, around there and some settlement, this is uh, right at the end of the 16th century, some settlement expanding outside the, uh, uh, the walls. And also, you see there's some settlement here on the, on the south bank in what is now Southwark. There's another one here. Again, this is a little bit later, shows you the advances in cartography. Uh, City of London by Cornelius Dankertz. And... Um, uh, there's another one here by famous map by 
Wenceslas Holler. This one, of course, and some of the others too, they do again show the distinction between the built-up area and the fields beyond. But the evidence of natural vegetation, wildlife or other environmental matters is very sparse. And of course, the other thing that happens is that one cartographer drew on the work of another, an earlier one. So you often get um, inconsistencies in what appears to be the date and growth of the city. John Speed's map was copied from John Norden's map and Christopher Saxton's map, which I haven't uh, got here, uh, uh, of Christopher Saxton's atlas, for example. But Speed's map nevertheless shows villages such as villages such as Islington, Kentish Town, Hampstead, and the park at what was called Marybone. But it's very weak. They're all very weak on topography. The Holler map, this one, does, though, if you look very carefully, show you, and this is much later, of course, you can see in some of these squares, you can see, just about see, formal garden patterns starting to emerge. We'll come back to those in a little, uh, a little later. As the city grew... There was a drift, of course, in the areas beyond those, uh, the city boundary or the built-up area from arable cultivation to livestock, from corn to pasture, around the Tudor suburbs of, of places like Stepney, Haringey, Hackney, Knightsbridge and Bromley. Perhaps, of course, the climate was becoming a little colder and wetter. And there were still some ancient woodlands, but... Despite some legal protection, those were being nibbled away by the gathering of firewood and the grazing of animals. Some suburban areas were being developed as brick fields and lime kilns, for example, in Whitechapel and uh, uh, in Spitalfields, because that was more lucrative than farming. And the associated fumes and the removal of topsoil are lampooned in 19th century images, I beg your pardon, in the wrong order. Um, this is a 19th century image, which people may be familiar with. It shows London going out of town, or the March of Bricks and Mortar, um, published in the 19th century. You can see here the, the bricks spewing out uh, into new building and the haystacks running away. It would have been just the same in Tudor times. Let me just go back. Now... So here I've just tried to summarise that growth in comparison with the modern extent of London. So if you look at Bromley, Mitcham, Hounslow, Harrow, Edgware and so on, uh, Essex round here, you can see London very, very small. But you can see in the Roman city there, the medieval city a little bit beyond it, and the Tudor period, the 1590 city, and we're going to be looking at that one in particular, but it's spreading out along major routeways in all directions. This, um, by the early 16th century, this, this is an unattributed map drawn up about 1505. It shows you the nature of that inner city. Packed, densely packed with small houses, perhaps with only tiny yards behind them. You can also see here the Fleet River open to the air, running into the Thames down here, and some other open spaces, uh, particularly, for example, around the church, St Paul's Churchyard, and around here to the north of St Paul's as well. 
Um, you can see, too, some, some trees, some deciduous, coniferous, and orchard trees. Uh, you'd have to look very carefully, but if you look down here at Brackfriars, you can see a few representations of trees down there. So what I would ask you at this point is, where is the natural environment of Tudor London? What is it? In the maps and pictures and writings of the time, do we think the city is just a little scar on the surface of a primarily natural environment? Or does it reflect wholesale change in the wildlife and plants, the soils, waters and air of the lower Thames? Now, in our minds, we may hold a view of city squalor and stench, but some contemporary writings suggest otherwise. I beg your pardon. Um, I just want to show this image. Where's the natural in that? Um, a lovely image. I particularly like the choir singing. Can you see the music going off here? But the only natural that I can see in there is in the sky. There are some birds carefully drawn in. There's a small dog here, a well, large dog actually down there as well. Perhaps you might imagine that's Thomas Gresham having a go at it, but we'll come back to him in a minute. Okay, now, got a few quotes up here. Uh, Domenico Mancini, these are, these are all be slightly before the period we're interested in, actually, a particular period we're interested in, but Mancini was a Parisian scholar who visited London in 1482, and he described it, as it says here, as a royal city. And another writer said it was the sovereign of cities, the flower, the spelling is theirs, not mine, uh, the flower of cities, seemliest in sight. And somebody else there, Vaclav Shasek, said elegant gardens planted with various trees and flowers which are not found in other countries. We have suggestions from the very famous topographer John Stowe there in his survey of London, again, a little bit after our period of interest with Sir Thomas Gresham, um, writing about the Thames and saying there were snow-white swans fishing for needful meat in the Thames. George Turberville, a little bit earlier in our period, in fact, of, of interest, um, the silver-streaming Thames, whose rutty bank the which his river hems was painted all with variable flowers. And Thomas Platter, the banks of this river are wooded and gay with pleasant hamlets and homesteads. He was talking a bit about the bit downstream, actually, there. And um, there's another one here. Now, this one's interesting because this one from a Venetian visitor who should, of course, have had a good knowledge of the water environment, um, describing London as pleasant and delightful, but also, he says, the streets were so badly paved that they get wet at the slightest quantity of water and there's a vast amount of evil-smelling mud which doesn't disappear quickly but lasts a long time, in fact, nearly the whole year round. <laughs> Actually, I just wondered if it was... As I came here today, it might have been somewhat similar. Um, right. Uh, so... Stinking mud was not the only environmental problem emerging in Tudor London, as we'll see when we start our walk around the city. But before we sally forth, I'll just retell a little anecdote. Um, in 1635, Thomas Parr, who was a labourer from Shropshire, he was said to be 152 years old, and he was presented to the king. And a few weeks later, as he's brought from Shropshire to London... A few weeks later, he was old par, he was known as, he was dead. Apparently, 
not because of his great antiquity, but in the opinion of a set of learned doctors, including William Harvey, who's a pioneer of the blood circulation, he was dead because of a change in the non-naturals, and specifically London's air. Now, according to Harvey, Parr was a very robust and muscular man who had worked as a labourer until he was 130, and, wait for this, maintaining an active sex life until he was over 100. <laughs> the poor London air had done for him. So Harvey's view was that a city whose grand characteristic, and I'm quoting here, is an immense concourse of men and animals where ditches abound and filth and offal lie scattered about, to say nothing of the smoke engendered by the general use of sulphurous coal as a fuel, had suffocated him. Now, just lest you think that this is a, a minor um, uh, imaginary thing, Parr is actually buried with Chaucer, alongside Chaucer and later Dickens and other eminent people in Poet's Corner in the south transept of Westminster Abbey. I don't know whether he was 152. I think that's a bit unlikely, but the, the, the story clearly issues, uh, clearly illustrates the problems with the air of London. Now, let's turn to Sir Thomas Gresham. I want to go take you on a journey through some of the city's different areas. In Christmas 1559, this man, who was the financier for Queen Elizabeth I and other earlier sovereigns, had been knighted for his services. But the following autumn, he fell off his horse while riding in Antwerp and broke his leg. And that leg troubled him for the rest of his life and made walking rather difficult, despite the ministrations of a doctor who managed apparently to extract some of the bone fragments. I don't know how that was done. It sounds really painful. But with that calamity still to come, let's imagine the newly ennobled Sir Thomas striding through London in the summer of 1560, perhaps reflecting on a number of things, perhaps reflecting on his hurried journey back to London to offer support to the recently enthroned Queen, Queen Elizabeth, reflecting on his long-suffering wife Anne, who was planning their new townhouse in Bishopsgate, and, unknown perhaps to her, his other wife and illegitimate child in Antwerp. So he, he clearly had a lot to mull over. It's worth noting, too, in the context of walking, that Thomas had something of a shoe fetish. He, apparently, he typically had four to six bespoke pairs made every year, and in one year he ordered five pairs for himself and 31 pairs for his employees and got a discount for ordering in bulk. <laughs> Again, some of you will know that a new biography of Sir Thomas will shortly be published by John Guy, uh, and some of you will be aware. I, I have seen the proofs, and it is a very good read. Right, so to help us follow his journey, I'm going to call on the so-called Agas map, for particularly. This is the earliest detailed map of the City of London, of which just three engraved printing plates survive. These are the copper plate maps of the late 1550s, one plate of which is here in the collection at this museum. Its derivative was originally printed from eight wood blocks and shows the city sometime between 1561 and 1571. You can find an excellent website, and I really would recommend this. It's run for some 
uh, reason unknown, by the University of Victoria in Canada, but it, has, it allows you to move around through the city on the AGAS map and look in more detail at the different streets and buildings. And this map, this is a, a, a montage of all eight sheets, but this map also tells us a lot about the natural environment of the city. So, Thomas is going to start his walk in Bishopsgate, close to where his new house was to be built in a few years' time. And he's going to head out beyond the city walls to Moorfield and Shoreditch. He doesn't yet imagine his grand house, but it would be splendid. This is the site on which it was due to be built. Uh, this is Bishopsgate here. Here's uh, the Bishopsgate going up towards Shoreditch, north, and his house would be somewhere in here. It doesn't look like this. Um, uh, the house that was built doesn't actually look like this, so we assume this is uh, a little sketch plan just before it was built. The house was in an ideal position close to the countryside, so Thomas is going to walk up Bishopsgate and out into the fields to the north. Oh, I beg your pardon, that's, it. that's the grand house that he was subsequently going to end up with. This actually was the first site of, of uh, the original site of Gresham College, um, but it wasn't finished until 1566 after uh, he had his injury, his leg injury. So he wouldn't, have, uh, he, he wouldn't have seen that in the walk that we're going to take today. But what he would have seen is this, and these images from the AGAS map I think are really astonishing. He can see fields, he can see hedges, he can see isolated large trees and plenty of signs of life. If you look carefully, you can see archers here. There was a, a, a very odd story, actually, about uh, a woman walking in the field, I think it was in Spitalfield, accidentally got shot by, through a hedge by some of these archers. And so it wasn't actually really a safe place to walk. Um, but there are people drying clothes, you can see here presumably on, on the grass. Uh, there are wagons moving along the road, you see here. There are animals, there are cattle, sheep and some deer. Larger houses have spread out north of the gate here, north of Bishopsgate, and here's the old city wall, Moorgate, Bishopsgate. Here's the, here's the, uh, the road north, and you can see these some fairly substantial properties starting to emerge uh, north of the wall. The main advantage for Thomas, of course, on his walk is to escape the noxious air that could build up in the congested areas closer to the city centre when there was little wind. Looking back, there's a haze over the cottages, almost impeding his view of St Paul's. The windier hills to the north, here we see the windmills, are more healthy, he probably thinks. In Clerkenwell and Hoburn, uh, and looking north there, you can see also some formal gardens. And if you look carefully in some of the images, see different kinds of trees. I'm not sure whether I can spot one on here, but in some places you can clearly see what are orchard trees. The larger trees are almost certainly remnants of the forest that formerly occupied the area prior to the arrival of farming in Roman times. London's hinterland retained woodland well into the early modern period, for example, at St John's Wood, which is only three miles north of Westminster. Now, I'm a couple more images uh, to come, but I'm very indebted to my 
a good friend, Hilary Miller, who's listed all the trees here for me, likely to be present in and around Tudor London. But she points out that on none of the maps that she looked at did she see evidence of most of those trees. On many maps, the species can only be inferred. However, if you look down the left-hand side there, you can see the type of trees that would have been sitting just outside the city boundary. Now, we've already mentioned that the air quality worries Thomas, perhaps, as he looks south. An early author suggested that the smells of London came mainly from the idle poor, especially children and the elderly, and that these people in particular should be paid small sums of money to clean the city or punished if they chose idleness. It's a sort of early version of, of um, uh, um, I don't know, yeah, work experience or something. Um, the stinking and loathsome vapours apparently from their bodies and clothes would then no longer trouble London's resident gentry. Now, I think, I'm not sure what Sir Thomas would have thought of that, but it's certainly true that more of the stink came from chimneys, even on warm days, from cooking. Some of it also came from brew houses, soap boilers, lime burners and metal workshop, and a small amount, at this date, from coal. Most people cooked using wood or charcoal, which was brought in from the countryside areas around the city, and coal, particularly sea coal brought in from the northeast of England, didn't become a major source of pollution until the later part of the century. Some 20 or 30,000 tonnes of sea coal was brought in per year in the mid-16th century, the tax records show. And the pressure to use sea coal, perhaps in the interest of protecting what was regarded as the common wealth of the forests around the city, was considerable. But it was, the coal was problematic. And a later volume, some of you may be familiar with it, John Evelyn's Fumifugium, which was, wasn't published until 1661, refers to fulginous and filthy vapours. William Harrison, writing at around this time, lamented the great sails yearly made of wood, whereby an infinite quantity has been destroyed within these few years. So he, his concern was the forests were being removed, uh, or the trees were being removed, including, as you see here, there's... Oh, beg your pardon. Um, including... Um, these areas here, uh, relatively few trees left. This is Finsbury, Finsbury Field. Uh, some of you may even live up there. And uh, uh, Moor Field, we see here the wall continuing on. And we're, I think we're somewhere here just at the moment. OK. Um, now, Queen Elizabeth's solution to the dark smoke problem was to jail 15 owners of brew houses. London's leading polluters who had started to use the coal. I kind of think that wouldn't have been a very popular move, really. Um, what happened was, in January 1579, all the ale brewers and beer brewers were summoned to the Worshipful Company of Brewers Hall by commandment of the Lord Mayor and the Lord Chamberlain and told not to burn any coal while the Queen was living in Westminster. Despite protestations that there was no wood to be had in the winter, they were imprisoned and only released a few days later when they immediately went back to burning sea coal again. And as I said, imprisoning the brewers can't have been a very popular move. Um, there was a key legal case, actually, a little later, 1587, by 
future Chief Justice Edward Coke, who argued that, and this is a, has very interesting resonances with planning applications today, he argued that light and sweet air were as necessary as pure and wholesome water. Hence, of course, excessive smoke was illegal as a nuisance. The issue is, though, that it was the houses that remained the main source of the problem, with industry probably only responsible for about a quarter of the emissions. Women, servants and others who spent long hours cooking would have been particularly susceptible to the smoke inside the houses. Fine particles, as I'm sure many of you know, are especially toxic because they get into your lungs and bloodstream and they create the haze characteristics of urban areas. Sulfur dioxide is also produced, and that's very dangerous. Oddly, there, have, there has been research on air pollution, and uh, some, a group of researchers have estimated air pollution characteristics from 1125 through into the future, suggesting that by the end of the 16th century, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and PM10, that's slightly coarser particulates, were all dangerously high in the city, especially sulphur dioxide. Now, in the Middle Ages, I have, to, I, sh I have to ask you to remember these figures. In the Middle Ages, it was thought that there were about five to seven micrograms per cubic metre of sulphur dioxide in the Middle Ages, five to seven. In 1575, when Thomas was taking his walk, Sulphur dioxide levels probably reached 20 micrograms per cubic metre, and they went on rising. Now, that 20 figure, 20 micrograms per meter, cubic metre, is the target for annual mean concentrations uh, in today's legislation, routinely exceeded in Britain today. So, particulate levels were about 20 micrograms per metre in the medieval city too, but... 40 by 1625, so again rising. That's similar to somewhere like Delhi today. Western areas, and by Western areas we mean, we don't mean the far west, we mean uh, Western areas, I suppose, uh, still within the city wall, would have been cleaner because of the prevailing winds, but there were smogs occasionally even then. So, that's a little bit about air pollution. Now, Thomas is now going to walk back down, retracing his steps into the city, heading south for London Bridge. He's going to take a boat to Westminster. But before that, he's going to walk back through areas of the city that are much less salubrious. These closely packed buildings had already created some hydrological changes. By 1543, some streets were required to be paved, but a lot were not. The big problem was domestic rubbish. Even from medieval times, there had been laws forbidding people to throw rubbish into the yards and streets, things like rotting fish, meat and vegetables. So, of course, we know that that is exactly what they did. <laughs> Suburbs needed to be kept clear of mud and urine, according to Erasmus, and kept in better order to avoid epidemic diseases. There were animal wastes from animals being walked to market, and there were horses, also a problem. Now, some researchers have claimed that the ground in the city was not nearly as dirty as might be thought. Complaints arose mainly from breaches of the law, and they say, these researchers, that cleanliness was assumed to be important 
not least because the smell of these rotting materials was thought to cause illnesses. They also say that commercially, muck and household ash was being sold as a soil improver to market gardeners outside the city and hence removed from the areas around the houses. However, um, uh, oh, and in addition, um, there were paid scavengers from 1528, a little before our time, uh, before Thomas Gresham's walk, there were official carts marked with the sign of a sword and a dong fork. And there were plenty of animal scavengers too. There were dogs, kites and pigs, for example, roaming around in the streets. However, other researchers have noted that there are so many repetitions of the nuisance complaints that they were very likely to reflect, reflect a significant problem. Early Tudor cities were very dirty places by modern European standards. I just put this in to show you um, a, a little close-up from this wonderful Agas map. This is the, this is the site where uh, Gresham College is based today in, in Hoburn. And you can see um, the courtyard. This is uh, likely to be a representation of the existing building, in fact. But you can see here Fetter Lane and, uh, and gardens and so on behind it, Chancery Lane, uh, wooded gardens. Here's Hoburn. And um, uh, interesting here, uh, a formal garden, a not garden. We'll come back to those in a second. Um, now... Um, the packed streets, this is a, a wonderful picture of Cheapsides. We've had the animals in Cheapside. There were also uh, times when I imagine it was cleaned up. This is a procession along Cheapside of Edward VI going to his coronation, looking, towards, looking across the river south towards Southwark. And you can see open fields beyond the substantial trees of, of Southwark and the, and the single line of houses there. But uh, here you can see... Uh, uh, Cheapside, and uh, there's a yard over here. And if you look at the another representation of this, you can see down here in the bigger uh, printed version the the, the small uh, the small houses without any without any gardens for the most part. Um, he would. I just. This is just an aside. Uh, Thomas would have passed very close to where his major project, the Royal Exchange, was to be built, but it wasn't built until six years, uh, uh, no, a score of years after the time we're talking about now. Um, OK, so here's a typical backyard. Again, this is a 19th century image, but would have been very similar in, in Tudor times. Perhaps the yards might have been even smaller. Problem with waste uh, of all sorts, then. Um, there would also have been other problems. Disposal of dead bodies was likely to be a source of soil pollution, with ammonia, hydrogen sulphide, fats and greases leaking from corpses, not to mention the likelihood of pathogens entering the near-surface environment. There were major burial sites at places like Smithfield that were opened up after plagues and again in the mid-15th century, but there were graveyards around every church and many were very full indeed. So burial without coffins in shallow graves cannot but have generated offensive fluids which entered the soil and created contamination. We also are going to have contamination from proto-industrial workshops, acute toxic pollution from things like leather working, uh, dyers and fullers uh, working with acids, 
And in fact, at Houndsditch, outside the city wall, a gun foundry, uh, which was polluting the ground with lead, zinc, cadmium and other metals. Now, for comparative purposes, this is a diagram taken from some of my own research some years ago in Africa, in, uh, in Uganda. Uh, Uganda had a population of about 40,000 people, but there were others, probably the total nearer 60,000, uh, outside the administrative area, many of the population living without effective waste disposal systems, leading them to throw waste and wastewater onto the ground by their houses. Unpaved minor roads and pit latrines. Now, the population at that time and its weak technological base allows a comparison with Tudor London. I'm not suggesting that the people, the characteristics of the people are similar to those of Tudor London. And of course, this is an area that even in, uh, in 2005 had mobile phones and so on. But it did have a very inadequate uh, drainage and um, waste disposal system. So what you see here is an area imme immediately around the built-up area of contaminated groundwater. I'll spare you the scientific details. But if we go forward, I've done a rather crude diagram of the, what it would have been like in Tudor London. I think in the centre of London, right in the centre of London, here's the city wall here, right in the centre of London, it would have been extremely contaminated, far more so than, uh, than Iganga in, uh, in, in Uganda. But it would have been ground... Uh, contaminated with all sorts of toxic and uh, as toxic contaminants leaking into the river and, and a small area on the south bank as well. So this sort of penumbra, if you like, stretching down but not quite reaching Westminster. Um, and then beyond that, reasonably safe. Of course, the implications of that for water supply um, have to be considered. So, despite the activities of the scavengers, Sir Thomas was probably picking his way carefully among the piles of excrement, rotting vegetation and animal carcasses, worried about his shoes. <laughs> now, I'm going to take you very quickly up to Westminster. He travels up to Westminster. He's rowed up past very pleasant gardens and we'll, I'm going to show you a series of maps very quickly, this is the western part of the city. Here's St Paul's Cathedral. Here's the narrow area going up towards um, Westminster Palace. And despite the pleasant scent of herbs occasionally wafting across the water, here too there is something of a problem with smell. I hope you're passing some of these uh, herby things around because there are lots of different ones in there, some more pungent than others. Um, the Thames is a great river. There's no doubt about that. It was uh, described as a uh, fair silver Thames, clearest crystal flood by uh, a poem in a poem addressed to Queen Elizabeth I. But in all likelihood, the river was not crystal clear, even away from the banks by the time of Gresham's voyage. The river was very muddy at high tide and in floods. And Harrison wrote in 1577, and I like this one, you shall take haddock with your hand beneath the bridge as they float aloft upon the water whose eyes are so blinded with the thickness of that element that they can't see where to become. Now, most of the feeder rivers were extensively polluted and people threw organic wastes directly into the water. 
East Cheap butchers threw slaughtered animals' intestines into the river near Pudding Lane, despite this prohibition on industrial waste, presumably at night, when the chances of being caught were rather slight. We know that offal was supposed to be taken to the riverfront to be fed to the bears, but as Falstaff says in Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor, have I lived to be carried in a basket like a barrow of butcher's offal and to be thrown into the Thames? i.e. they were polluting. And there was, in fact, a slaughterhouse close to Westminster Palace itself. So he's travelling up here, round here. So this is a, a very close uh, contemporary map. More importantly, houses had privies draining directly into the river, more important than the offal, and chamber pots were routinely emptied into the river. Now, I'm not going to read you all of these things. It looks very nice here. This is Westminster, I'm not sure. Um, Westminster down here somewhere, the palace. Charing Cross, see the fields beyond it. And uh, close up there, there's Charing Cross up there. There's the cross. Uh, and uh, gardens and things all along here. Some woodland, some deer in St James's Park over here, and some, some trees, some single trees. This is Lambeth Palace down here. Um, now, private privies were scattered about, mainly near the Thames. Pairs of houses often had their own cesspits, filled by a chute from the House of Easement or the House of Office. Those were only emptied occasionally. So household chamber pots were frequently emptied into the filthy streets. It wasn't supposed to be like that. Merchant Tailors School, and I don't know if there's anybody here who went to a Merchant Tailors School, the one established in 1561 in Suffolk Lane had a school rule that said, unto their urine the scholars shall go to the places appointed them in the lane or street without the court, while for other courses, causes, if need be, they shall go to the waterside. By the 15th century, there were a dozen public toilets in different places over the fleet at Ludgate, known because Christ's Hospital found babies in there at the Jakes, so-called Jakes. And there was a long house uh, at Queen House, a, a common privy by the Thames. It seated 64 users simultaneously, 32 men and 32 women. That's, I expect the queuing problem was the same as it is today. <laughs> And there were lots of private privies uh, elsewhere as well. Um, so many of these houses here alongside the river would have had a privy emptying directly into the stream. Um, I just put this up to illustrate that there are some more detailed maps of some of the, uh, uh, some of the plots. Uh, and here's another, uh, uh, yet another map, a John Norden map. Of course, the Thames occasionally was frozen. That's a lovely image, which we'll just come back down there in a minute. Some of you will be familiar with Peter Bruegel, the elder's paintings. This one is called Netherlandish Proverbs. And if you look really closely, we move, zoom in onto it. You see the river here, down here. Here's the river. If you zoom in very carefully and look very carefully, you will see here exactly what I was talking about. This is a wonderful proverb. It's the equivalent of cut from the same cloth, you know. Um, okay, and we also know that oh, the flushable toilet had yet to be invented, of course. Uh, however, we also know that there were problems with the fish. Uh, 
lots of controlled fishing on the Thames, and they, from the 1300s onwards, they had been concerned about illicit fishing with net mesh that was too small, rather like, uh, rather like today. OK, so problems with the water. Uh, there's another picture of uh, the, 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 one of the sketches informing one of those earlier um, diagrams. Now, Thomas is going to travel back now from Westminster to Southwark. And I want to concentrate very briefly on the vegetation. There's a lot written about this. Um, Southwark was almost a second city of 8,000 people or so, and about a score of brothels uh, on St Thomas's, uh, at the time of St Thomas's Walk. Perhaps that's where he was headed. This is certainly a possibility. Uh, but in the 1500s, it was reported that you could smell the river despite the beautiful gardens uh, that lay alongside it. Now, in terms of ecology, we know quite a lot about the plants and animals that were grown and occurred, mainly because people ate a lot of them. So things like sorrel, garlic, wild mustard, uh, things that taste like cook asparagus, and we know that there was bracken because it was used in, in bedding for animals, and lots of other things, mushrooms, cowslips, roses, primroses, and so on, stinging nettles too, were eaten in the spring. Burdock as well was used as a flavouring. Those are natural plants still managing to eke out an existence, but we also know there were lots of gardens, and um, those gardens were obviously unnatural, they were artifice, not natural vegetation, not natural environment. This, uh, this is a, a, the Gardener's Labyrinth book published in uh, 1577 and again in 1587. And you can see there the man planting uh, his, his flowers and plants. Um, in fact, uh, what was said in this book was subsequently suggested by uh, John, uh, by, uh, sorry, the other book that came out was John Gerard's Herbal, came out in 1597. Uh, it was supposed to describe the plants in his garden, but uh, somebody had written in the copy that one of the copies that survived, where it says this is a this is a true account of what's in my garden. A, a friend had crossed it out and written Hike essay fallissima. This is untrue. <laughs> um, so we can't be quite sure what was grown, but we know that there must have been herbs. We know that there must have been vegetables, uh, fruit trees, bees and so on. Some of those had survived from the monastic gardens that Henry VIII, uh, for which Henry VIII had effectively taken over. And um, we know that there were all sorts of flowers as well. Now, I can't give you a picture of a Tudor garden. I don't know if any of you recognise the gardens here. It's the, the Chelsea Physic Garden, which is, of course, not a Tudor garden. It's a bit later uh, and, in fact, wouldn't have looked exactly like a Tudor garden anyway. But this is the nearest I, can, I could get. Rectangular beds with flowers, many of which were not the flowers of today, but were the flowers, earlier versions, more like uh, the natural flowers of the region. We also know that in this area there was wildlife. We know that, again, because of the food, we know that there were mammals of various sorts, reptiles, insects, so on, rabbits, deer, seabirds, and so on. And menus included most of those, including swans and herons, which were presumably local. Now, um, we actually, oddly, uh, we know more about the alien species. When I first looked at this map, 
I thought those, that was the, um, the theatre, the, the Globe Theatre. In fact, it's not. It's a, a little too early for the Globe Theatre. It's two bear-baiting pits, the ones that should have had the offal thrown into the, thrown into the river. And we also know that there were lots of other alien species in the tower. We know that... Uh, um, this is, sorry, this is a view of, of Southwark again. But we know that in the tower here... This is the Agas map again. We know that there were all sorts of things from an early stage. Lions, tigers, uh, a polar bear that was allowed to swim in the Thames, uh, lynx, wolves, eagles, porcupines, and a tiger at one point. And in fact, some of these, there is some evidence from, uh, from the archaeology, skulls of some of these animals have actually been dug up. So they did exist, and there were other things as well. Now... There's the tower. No sign of any animals, but there's some haystacks in the grounds there, I think. OK, now, um, so here we are. We're in looking towards Southwark, uh, back down the river here. And um, I want you to bring Thomas's uh, walk to an end by ending his day with a feast at Bermondsey. And um, I love this picture... This is my final, almost my final image, because if you look closely, and I don't know if any of you have children or grandchildren that have Where's Wally um, books, but I think that's probably Sir Thomas Gresham in there, just there. Um, but we see in this picture, a uh, beautiful picture of uh, uh, exactly the right period for us. We can see various kinds of deciduous trees. We could probably identify some of those. We can see the grass, uh, some of the vegetation very close to the river, there's the tower over there, uh, the Thames coming through here, and uh, a wonderful celebration going on. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, very quickly, we learn that the medieval city had only a very limited impact on its environment. But by the time you get to Tudor London, there was a turning point. The size of the city had expanded beyond a critical point, probably around 100,000 people, when the rate of expansion was outstripping the ability of the technology to deal with the problems. And so we had problems with air, with water, with soil, and to a certain extent with ecology, although the ecology would change more dramatically later on. Um, of course, the other thing that would change dramatically later on was this. These two pictures are both in the museum here. Uh, by 1666, the very large proportion of the area that I've been describing and giving you some insights into its history are wiped out. And here's the area destroyed by the fire, St Paul's Cathedral there, London Bridge there, and Southwark that we just were, um, we were in down here escaped. But you can see there that the whole thing was gone. So if you have been listening, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. <laughs>